welcome. You are listening to the Theology Mill from Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. I actually work here at Whitfinstock, and I'm also the host of this podcast, uh, which consists of interviews with some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you hear on the podcast, come stop by our website at whipfinstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K dot com. And this episode is the second installment of our series, The Grind, uh, in which we interview young scholars and PhD students on what it's like to try to make a way in the theological academy, particularly today. On this episode, I interview Cody Biven-Starr, PhD student at the University of Aberdeen. Cody is studying theological ethics at Aberdeen and writing his dissertation on a theology of madness under the direction of Dr. Brian Brock. So with that, let's head over to the interview. Okay, so I am here with Cody Biven-Starr. Um, Cody is a PhD student at University of Aberdeen, and you're studying with Brian Brock, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Okay, and we are sharing a drink, as it were. So I have my, uh, I have my black tea, which is, I brought the package like I try to do usually. It's a malty Assam black tea from Tao of Tea here in Portland, and it's from Assam, India. It's really, really delicious. I like it black. I think it's tasty black, but I'm actually, I have some raw milk um, in there because it's really tasty as well. What are you sipping on? I have got an espresso tonic that I made this morning. Oh my gosh. Uh, the espresso wow. is, I cannot remember the roaster, but it is an African origin. Okay. And then there's some agave in there and tonic water and a little bit of Loganberry liqueur, which okay. wow. for 11 a.m. is kind of crazy, but there's not much in there, just enough for flavor. So <laughs> Nice. You're taking it to the next level. Holy cow. Now, are you are you in Portland? For some reason, I have it in my head that you're based in Portland. I am. Yes, I am okay. in Portland. Okay. So you 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 are uh, you have all the same like luxury of just amazing coffee and tea places and food places that I do. That's actually wild right. that you're in Portland and we've never connected. We should definitely grab Absolutely. sometime. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Okay, let's talk about um, your theological formation, because I know I've seen you um, post a little bit on Instagram about kind of your, your, your theological journey, your spiritual journey. I know you did your master's at Wheaton, now you're doing your PhD at Aberdeen. So tell me a little bit about kind of how um, your theological mind has been formed throughout sort of the course of your graduate education. Yeah, I think, so I came into... By the time I got to Wheaton, um, I had gone to undergrad and at a Pentecostal, like liberal arts school, um, and there I st- like I studied biblical languages and biblical studies, um, and that was pretty much, I mean, for the most part, that was run of the mill, like basic Bible exegesis type stuff, like evangelical. Um, hermeneutics i'm trying to think of like key people but i can't even remember like i know that like wayne grudem was like the systematics guy right yep (laughs) so 
I like I for the most part in undergrad I had done a lot of that and I had one professor who introduced me to like Stanley Harawas and nice. um was also the first time I ever heard like Bart and Bonhoeffer used uh, mm. like had never heard of them before um and of course when I decided to go to Wheaton I actually had like a few warnings about studying Bart as oh, okay. uh from that context so a lot of my early formation was very evangelical um very historical critical like approach to the bible mm -hmm. not much like not heavy on theology actually uh mm -hmm. just very heavy on biblical exegesis so sure. by the time i got to wheaton i was kind of like really wanting more in-depth theological analysis and thinking really like critically about the faith and uh, Wheaton was kind of like a weird place to be uh to do that because the sort of vision of Wheaton is very evangelical and mm -hmm. I guess like to a lot of people it's pretty conservative but that wasn't my experience on the inside um mm -hmm. most of the professors were very like open to I mean you know, reading anything from like Dorothy Soul to Karl Barth to B.B. Mm, yeah. Warfield, like, I mean, yeah. everything was there. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there I came into this having kind of left the denomination that I was in that was Pentecostal and came into mm -hmm. this evangelical, but like intellectually rigorous world. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was exposed to Bart. Uh, which mm. for some people is like, that's either a bad thing or a good thing. But yeah. for me, Bart really opened up this world of Christian theology being number one, like in, intensely in depth as, you know, anyone familiar yeah. with Bart knows it's just like, you have like 14 plus volumes of yeah. just straight <laughs> yeah. theology. Yeah. Um, but for me, like, I also had a lot of this, like, political um, bent in my life mm -hmm. and was pretty involved in, like, activism and stuff. And oddly enough, like, studying Bart and figuring out that, like, oh, for Bart, this whole theological project is political theology. Like, the whole mm -hmm. thing from the start to the finish is ethics and um yeah i mean like for me that was a big tipping point because even before starting the phd i had to start like really considering well there's not really much of a dichotomy between like thinking deeply about theology um mm -hmm. and getting into all the like you know like the really niche debates on christology or these things like that sure, sure. um but thinking that all of that has relevance to the way that we live and especially the way that we live in society and so uh yeah i came out of grad school really with a lot of like i did so my master's is in systematics so i guess technically i was doing systematic theology but i was constantly having that frame of mind mm -hmm. and now uh so far in, in my PhD work, really, that 
tension is still there of like hmm. doing a lot of in-depth like systematics type stuff but always considering sort of the ethical and political behind yeah. that um yeah. so i don't know if that helps like paint a picture of my formation but it's kind of a journey from like wayne grudem systematics yeah. <laughs> to like oh i actually think that systematic theology can be anti-fascist or can like mm. actually ground movements against oppression and yeah. uh totalitarianism so yeah i think yeah. that is a little bit about that formation but for sure yeah yeah it's it's tricky like making your way in the academy trying to find where you fit like disciplinary like as far as disciplines um because i think for so many people like myself included um i sort of am like resistant to thinking within disciplines like it's it's more fun to um <laughs> uh, yeah it's more i think more fun and more fruitful to be kind of cross-disciplinary and so and and ultimately like to some extent like those disciplinary constraints are helpful because they provide focus but they can also be they can also be limiting and restrictive and and Kind of, I think I think can like prevent work from being uh, like as generative as it could be otherwise, I guess. Um, but that yeah, that's a really fascinating story of your development from Grudem to Hauerwas. I feel like that's a pretty stark contrast. So um, <laughs> yeah, and I know and I know for you, part of the journey was kind of um, kind of moving um, communities. So kind of a, a spiritual journey as well. So, so could you talk a little bit to that too? Yeah. Um, so like I said, Pentecostal school, um, specifically it was in the assemblies of God. So I guess I should have clarified that because there's like three or four really large Pentecostal denominations. Sure. Um, yeah. And by the time I got to graduate school, I had like attempted to, I had, interned with a really awesome church in Iowa that was Assemblies of God, but like was using like the Book of Common Prayer and mm. like wow. liberation theology. It was like this really um, interesting place where it was, you know, there's like speaking in tongues happening while you're hearing the Apostles Creed, like just really strange, yeah. but awesome. <laughs> uh, That's cool. And just like that church really embodied like the struggle of the church was predominantly poor and mm. um but it's the like i guess if, i wouldn't say a motto but i guess the motto for the church was all things common from acts to uh you know where all of the early believers are selling their possessions and distributing it to each other and that i mean that really like happened in that church and so for me i really just was looking for a community like that again. Um, but after George Floyd and his murder, mm -hmm. the Assemblies of God at the time, like really didn't step up. And I, that was a really big issue for me. It was close to Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as, you know, Portland, Chicago, all of the, like some of the yeah. hotbeds for a lot of resistance there. And yeah. To me, it was just like, I guess it was sort of a like Bart Bonhoeffer kind of moment where you realize that you're the people who formed you, like 
are not stepping up to the plate and um all of the theology and the biblical studies training that they that that they teach like clearly did not give them the like drive to say something or act Mm. in a particular way i think like i am not parallel to barton in any real form but in his biography like there is a point in which when world war one begins like his theological professors all sign this document you know supporting it and saying like this is what is good and this is what the church should support and for me it was like the last straw because trump's election was the first really big straw where seeing the people who you looked up to sort of giving a pass to these things and then george floyd's murder the response was like you know supporting the army coming into your cities and just this absolute chaos. And so for me, I just kind of at that point decided that to leave formally. And then I was attending Anglican churches for a while in grad school, really, really good church, what had like mostly philosophy and art professors attending. So it was pretty interesting. (laughs) Um, Very like aesthetic based, like everything was it was like anglo-orthodox almost uh just all of the bells and whistles you know yeah 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 um and when my wife and i moved out to portland a little over a year ago we were attending an Anglican church and uh just kind of had like a lot of weird awakenings where we realized like maybe we aren't anglican (laughs) and Um, even though we like value a lot of the spirituality and the theology, um, we ended up landing in a Mennonite community or at actually Portland Mennonite church. Um, and really just found to me, it was like there, everyone really thinks deeply about theology, but what ends up mattering more, I wouldn't say more, but what really matters is the the action and, Mm -hmm. um, there's not much of a dichotomy between ethics and theology for the Mennonite community. It's very much, yeah. oh, like Jesus actually meant what he said about X, Y, Z, and mm-hmm. we should actually practice this. And mm-hmm. for me, it was just like, I kind of described it to my wife one time, like the community was like a warm hug after mm-hmm. jumping from so many different places. And yeah. so, yeah, we decided to stay and, I'm actually like formally becoming a Mennonite soon. So I guess that's okay. nice. the, the cap to the journey. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm like a perfect Mennonite uh, because I have all this sort of like, you know, I'm like reading dogmatic theology, which Mennonites aren't famous for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of good stuff and it's a really valuable community to have in such like an isolated time yeah for sure yeah yeah no actually Whitfenstock has a lot of people on staff and one of our ceos too are are part of um not a mennonite church but a kind of a communitarian church um called uh christ i'm gonna butcher it i don't think i have it right i know the the acronym is cosk they call it cosk i think it's christ of 
of the servant king or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I can attest to the fact that like they, one of their big mantras, because they, they live in like, in um, they do like community living. So they, a lot, most of them like live with each other. Um, mm. But they, they very much are like, let's, you know, one thing I've heard them say, sort of this refrain is like, let's be the church rather than just going to church. And I see them really kind of living at the boundary between doctrine and praxis and kind of mm. de kind of defying that dichotomy, which is a cool thing. Um, let's let's talk a bit about what you're researching now. So what are, what are you kind of digging into? It's your second year of your PhD at Aberdeen, is that right? Uh, it's my first year, actually. First yeah. year? Okay, first year. So what are you studying right now at Aberdeen? So the actual degree is theological ethics. Um, and I, like you mentioned, I'm with Brian Brock, who is an excellent supervisor. Um, and my research is attempting to provide a theological account of madness or psychosis. Mm. Um, and I use those terms in particular because um, primarily madness to emphasize a sort of demedicalized uh, mm. way of understanding yeah. it. And then psychosis, I think, is more a term. It is a medical term, but um, or a psychological term, but it captures sort of the umbrella of a lot of things that get mm -hmm. categorized. Um, so I think that for most people, it would be schizophrenia being probably the biggest one, um, certain types of bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, schizotypal. Yeah. And then of course you can go down the list of all of the, the different di diagnoses that yeah. are all under that umbrella. But um, yeah, I'm attempting to provide a theological account. And I guess basically what that means is I'm trying to really complicate our perception and our presuppositions about what madness is. Yeah, um, which is and yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the other dynamics of my research is I'm trying to do that while taking seriously the real material context that madness occurs in, especially in the United States. Um, I mean, I think the last statistic I checked, there's like 43% of the prison population in the U.S. has like mental illnesses of some sort. Wow. Um, okay. And I would have to double check that. But the point being that you have millions of people in prison and then millions of them experiencing different forms of psychosis, yeah. whether yeah. Uh, prior to entering the prison system or while they were, are in the prison system. So I'm trying to take seriously the experience of psychosis while also not ignoring the very basic fact that living with madness in the US it comes with a bunch of intersecting forms of mm -hmm. violence and oppression from the state. Um, sure, sure. So I think I've got my work cut out for me, but yeah. that the goal is basically to make this a complicated um, discussion and to say mm -hmm. that perhaps, I mean, at, at very, at, at minimum, that the Christian, um, the Christian church should have the resources to 
at least say that something is happening here that's not necessarily limited to the way that the conversation is happening now. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah. I one of the things, I'm not really dealing with a lot of Christian mystics, and I guess I can mention why uh, as well, but, you know, Christian history is full of people we take seriously that are experiencing these very wild, I mean, like St. John of the Cross, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, e- even Julian, who is like having visions of Christ bleeding out in her bedroom or yeah. like Christ yeah. holding all of creation in a hazelnut, right? Um, yeah. And it's interesting because for the most part, Christians consider them to be, oh, like you read this and it's like, devotional material or you read this and it's it's theologically rich material but then someone experiences psychosis and yeah we immediately sort of either medicalize that as an illness or a disorder or in really worst case spiritual scenarios we're thinking it's some sort of evil or demonic activity yeah um and I guess my goal is just to say that neither of those are really good accounts hmm. of what might be happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. That's so, I feel like that's so, so needed. Like I said, I, I mean, yeah, you were talking about saints and I think even of like a lot of these, a lot of these saints actually had, I mean, they probably weren't diagnosed at the time cause they, you know, they maybe didn't necessarily have diagnoses. Um, in these kinds of things back then, but like St. Therese of Lisieux or like mm-hmm. Ignatius of Loyola, like uh, definitely had issues with, you know, pretty severe anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, like all sorts of stuff. Right. And like Absolutely. you said, we, we read them as, we read them as, as mystics and, and as this sort of like beautiful spiritual literature, um, but sort of miss the fact that like, they were pretty messed up and and if they were living today uh you know we would we would probably uh think that it was you know their struggles were a bit too much and 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 just yeah the extent to which our society like hides mental illness and doesn't want to like deal with it or talk about it and and feels right. like it's just too much i think is is really a problem because i think it's i think it's very hidden like how many people really struggle with mental illness and and not just in the like cliche sense of um you know there's i think there's a lot of talk of like ending stigma and lots mm-hmm. of people are realizing they struggle with anxiety and depression and stuff but also even you know more more severe forms of of mental illness i think are we're we're discovering are much more common than we had previously realized so i think that's awesome that you're doing that work i think it's super super needed um let's talk about your experience um kind of selecting a supervisor what was that process like as you were trying to discern um and also a pro, like what um, picking a program like what what was it like for you finishing up your master's at wheaton and trying to figure out where you were going to do your phd and who you wanted to study with yeah um it was kind of a an interesting process because as early as my undergrad i had read an article by brian um hmm. and I was pretty much hooked. I was like, this is, I can't remember. I think the article, I want to say the article was like talking about um, being a parent in a medical context 
as like political agency or something like really, mm. really wow. intense. Um, and I remember reading it and thinking like this way of, I mean, there was theology, there was political analysis, there was bi bioethics and medicine, which is some of Brian's background. Mm -hmm. And then there was this like way of merging those things that I was just really captivated by and knew that if I was going to, like I pretty much since I was 18, I knew I wanted to like do something about madness, psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the, the issue for me was like, okay, here's you're coming out of Wheaton. Um, like Wheaton has a lot of good relationships with places like Princeton and mm -hmm. Emory. And so my supervisors at Wheaton are like, okay, like these are good programs that you definitely like have a shot at and you should go for. And so I'm trying to like really number one, figure out like a supervisor who like who can actually engage this topic that yeah. not just like, Oh, like theology. And like, like you said earlier about like the interdisciplinary process. Um, Cause for me, it was pretty obvious. I would have to read at the very least like psychology and psychiatry um, yeah. to, to wrestle with it, but also just realizing that, oh, this, this topic has a history, not just in psychology, but you have political philosophy, which in, mm -hmm. uh, in the sixties mm -hmm. and seventies is raising the issue of madness with people like Foucault and Artie Lang yeah. and the anti-psychiatry movement. So I was like, I need a supervisor who feels comfortable dealing with these dialogue partners as well as, you know, Christology or whatever. And that really narrowed it down pretty quickly uh, yeah. because doing a PhD in theology and wanting that sort of context, I, I probably had like three or four people mm -hmm. uh, that I had narrowed it down to, which for me was at first it was Princeton, Emory, St. Andrews and Aberdeen were the four that I mm -hmm. was yeah. going to apply to. Um, Princeton didn't feel right, not because it wasn't good. I would have been honored to have been there, but, mm -hmm. um, I just was kind of struggling with like, okay, like who, who here is actually going to be able to like, yeah, willing to do this. Uh, yeah. and then, so yeah, I applied to Emory and St. Andrews and Aberdeen, uh, pretty right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. So yeah. wow, okay. that also like made it difficult I, it, mm -hmm. you know if anyone is listening and they're like now considering a phd it might be a little bit of a different process yeah. uh because at the time it was like okay like no i from my understanding there wasn't like you know in-person interviews which sometimes happens mm -hmm. um supervisors were i mean pretty much everyone i contacted was interested in what i was doing but they were kind of worried about like if their enrollment was even gonna like you know the financial issues yeah. of taking on new students and yeah so yeah i mean i ended up i think i got offers for um 
doing like a master's prior to the PhD at St. Andrews and Mm -hmm. Emory. I was on like a list for them, uh, which I wasn't necessarily disappointed in because they kind of said like, yeah, not very many people got straight into it this year. Um, Just, I think it was just a chaotic time to be applying to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, at that point, I mean, Brian was always my number one, and uh, the UK process for, I guess, people who aren't familiar is much different um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're not applying to the school or the department; you're applying directly to the supervisor you want to work with. Yeah. Um, so I had contacted Brian, and then I had contacted. Uh, Andrew Torrance at St. Andrews, uh, plenty prior to the application process, just to mm-hmm. start that conversation. Because if they weren't interested, then you, I mean, there's no application to have. Uh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I was really just like looking for someone who I felt not only would be open to really guiding me through this literature that, again, I have theological training and I'm going to be reading like Lacan and psychoanalysis. I like, I need someone that is, if they're not familiar, like willing to walk with me to get familiar with that. Um, And Brian ended up being the one that like, like well over and above what I was expecting. Um, Awesome. So, yeah, I don't know if that, like the process was just kind of weird for me because I already knew like this is the person that I would want to work with, but also like not putting all my eggs in one basket. Um, and yeah, it ended up working out. And I would say like also again with supervisors, the the tip that I was given was if you email them now and you and there's a conversation that starts, but you don't hear back from them then even if you were accepted at the program, that is an indication of how quickly they will get back to you in the program. And that relationship is something you really, you know, when you have a proposal due in like three days and you need sort of help or you need something, like you want a supervisor who is really on top of everything, so. Yeah, I imagine that's especially the case doing a distance program in the UK that if I can only imagine how frustrating it would be if you had a supervisor who was very <laughs> slow to respond to emails, that would be pretty dang frustrating. So, oh, yeah, what, what would you say? What would you say are like some of the pros and cons of going UK system versus US system? I know there are lots of differences, but what's what's been kind of what you found to be, um, I guess, helpful and unhelpful about the UK system? I think the there's probably a lot of opinion about this and I've run into a lot of different opinions about this. Um, I think at minimum, the, like the UK, the key difference is really research versus like teaching. I think, Mm. um, U S programs usually require teaching and, and really prepare someone to step into the liberal arts context as a Mm. professor. That's like, teaching 18 credits a year or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the UK context is re- their research universities. So um, the pro for me has been, I 
am open to like working in the academy and things like that. But for me, primarily, I wanted to research this. Like I want uh, to spend the time like solely devoted with without divided attention on this subject. And I think the UK really offers that because, you know, and it, it might be like a pro and con thing where you're not teaching, you're not expected to be teaching during the UK PhD because you are expected to be spending all of your time on the dissertation. Right. Um, and for me, that is exactly what I wanted. Like I wanted just the room and the time to do that without taking I was getting pretty burnt out on coursework, especially I finished my master's in COVID. So the idea of doing another two years of coursework was, <laughs> I was just, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, yeah. And so I think, yeah, the, the biggest pro for me is, is being able to say that I'm, I'm ready to like jump in to the research process and that, really being taken seriously at that stage uh which for i mean that's actually what would prevent someone from going to a uk pro or getting accepted to a uk program if, if your research is not if at least defined enough that you know yeah. the direction you're heading in mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. which i guess i should have said that part of the application process the primary part for the uk is a, a research proposal like right. um and yeah, so for me coming in already knowing like, this is what I want to research. These are the key like directions that I want to go and being able to just start and mm -hmm. yeah. immediately, uh, obviously I'm not like, <laughs> I, I don't feel prepared to defend what I'm doing <laughs> right this second. Right. I'm yeah, first year is like, all pretty much research but um yeah the con i think honestly the biggest con which i would definitely like warn everyone who's considering uk, UK phds is funding that's hmm. um i don't know i am not wise enough to understand all of the dynamics of like why it's this way but uk phds don't typically have funding for non well now uk and eu citizens yeah. um and it's very like it's kind of like a russian roulette type thing which mm -hmm. is kind of graphic but like it's there will be a scholarship once in a while that comes up through the university itself that you can apply to but it's like on a cycle so you might be the type the person that is unlucky enough that you're three years in the program is not in the cycle of these certain scholarships. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's definitely the biggest con. I mean, most US yeah. PhDs are pretty well funded. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I, uh, I actually have a buddy who did. He actually did two masters at Wheaton as well. Um, you might actually know him. I don't know. Zach Wagner is his name, and he's doing his um, PhD at Oxford now um, in, awesome. in New Testament. Um, but he, that was his thing too. That's why he chose UK over US. Well, I think, well, he had a couple of reasons. One was because he felt like the UK was a little more open to like confessional scholarship. Yes. Like, 
um and his 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 description i think was like uh maybe i shouldn't talk so much for him on a podcast but um his description was like in the u.s it just can get a little weird in terms mm -hmm. of like confessional scholarship whereas yeah. in the uk they're much more open to it and it's kind of more commonplace um but but his maybe even bigger reason was uh that he was just super sick of coursework and he didn't want to do two or three more years of coursework before he started his his phd so because he had right. done two master's degrees so he's <laughs> like dude i'm i'm done and he had you know two kids and so he's like i'm done doing coursework i want to just start writing yeah i think um, that's an excellent point uh yeah. sorry but no, about the confessional it. thing like i part of my theological formation was becoming convinced that not only through the academy, but through my experiences at churches, which were predominantly poor, um, mm -hmm. was realizing that confessional theology actually does really matter to oppressed and marginalized people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a popular notion in the US to acknowledge, but in the UK, definitely like very open to that ironically enough because you know you, europe and the uk are pretty post-christian at this point yeah. um but in the academy it's like oh you actually think that god became human okay cool like i'm a physicist let's talk about it yeah. and in the u.s <laughs> yeah. it's like even in theology it's like whoa like put on like the emergency brakes with the confessional yeah. <laughs> yeah. confidence there so totally totally yeah yeah um what what would you say um as far as as far as kind of your experience within the phd so far what what would you say have been maybe the biggest pain points and what have been sort of some of the joys as well yeah pain um i mean besides the issue of funding which is just a constant like pressure uh in the program itself what was really, what I really struggled with, and I think I'm still still getting used to, is that um, in the UK structure, you, I guess your assumption is like, okay, when I start, like, I've got my research proposal, and my supervisor is going to kind of keep editing that. And then I'm going to like, really know what I'm doing, like, from the start, like have a timeline, and start writing. But the reality is that it's the first year is like you are totally free to just like follow all of the rabbit trails that you want to follow and see if they work out and if they don't then you okay. just go to the next one right um and i wasn't really prepared for that because it's a very disorienting feeling of mm -hmm. okay like what should i be reading and like shouldn't I be reading this and this? And then you meet with your supervisor and they're like, oh yeah, like what you're doing is great. Like uh, just keep reading whatever you want right now. And with guidance, of course, like it's not totally yeah. just like yeah, yeah. free, but it's, it's strange because I feel like I, even just yesterday, I picked up a book that is like an introductory book to the philosopher Merleau-Ponty and mm -hmm. I'm considering drawing on the phenomenological school so I was like I know nothing about Ponty and so I need to read something that's like here's Ponty for like five-year-olds basically <laughs> and I actually like struggled because I was like is this a waste of my time like shouldn't I be reading mm -hmm. like 
some large treatise on, you know, like a big text that's a big deal or something. Yeah. But what's strange enough is that actually like right now that's normal. Like it's normal to read an intro and think like, okay, is there anything here worth following? And if not put it down, it wasn't a waste of time because I'm like narrowing down which threads I want to pull on. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been a pain point is like adjusting my expectations of having a very, Oh, I guess this is the point of coursework, right? You're in a course, mm -hmm. it's like week one, you read this, week two, you read this. And it's yeah. very like structured. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'm like reading like eight books at a time. And then when I finish those, it's just like whatever I'm interested in, I'm like yeah. going after. I feel like a puppy almost. I'm just like, oh, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like reading this guy, he mentions this concept. So now I'm going to read that book. And yep. Yeah. Uh, my supervisor is just like, cool, like this all you're, you're actually like more oriented than you think and you feel very yeah. disoriented, but this is all part of the process. So I think yeah. that's a pain point for me is like, I am a very structured person. So it was really difficult to like, not be told exactly what to read, when to read it with deadlines. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. and then you mentioned you asked about joys mm -hmm. i think honestly just the freedom right now of being in a context that values interdisciplinary work um but also confessional theology so i'm in a seminar right now reading bart's uh church dogmatics 2-2 like a couple paragraphs from that um and so I'm getting like that confessional sort of theology, but in my free, t free time, in my research time, I'm reading yeah. like <laughs> Fanon and Foucault okay. and okay. all of these like totally non-theological mm -hmm. stuff. And mm -hmm. it's, it's been a blast because I feel like I just the sheer amount of this stuff that I'm reading is really broadening my understanding of not just theology but these other fields that otherwise i wouldn't be involved in at all mm -hmm. um so that's been really valuable to me uh just because it's opened a lot of other doors to i mean for me and like we've talked before, earlier just about theology and praxis and as much as i love confessional theology and value it uh it can also tend to only speak to itself and be yeah, like, yeah. well, the only real dialogue partner about the debate on the hypostatic union is like these other people who have opinions about that. Um, but I think something about Aberdeen, especially with the ethics department is that there are, the goal is to do theology that takes seriously the world and um hmm. it's also confessional right like as as christ embraces the world in the incarnation so also we in we interact with it we're not separate from it and uh for me like that has opened a lot of doors of dialogue in places that totally would not have been open um for example like here in oregon out of 
the Oregon Health and Science University, there is a colloquium that happens on bioethics and humanities. And um, I was recently connected with the director of that, Tyler Tate, who is a pediatrician and also like went to Duke for theology. So he just lives in those two worlds. And um, yeah, like I'm just looking forward to going to those things and like interacting as a theologian that's like confessional, but can speak into the context of psychoanalysis without making it overly theological, I think, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, um, being able to engage in that is really a, a good thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Who, who would you say out of kind of all the like non theological, non Christian voices that you're reading, who would you say has maybe been like the most, um, or who has maybe informed most insightfully your your actual theology that you're doing? Oh, that's a that's a good question actually, because that's what I'm trying to think about right now. Yeah. Is is not only thinking of these figures as okay, they kind of inform me on this, but how are they actually changing the way I do theology? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, honestly, I think it would be a tie between Foucault and Fanon. Um, Mm. Foucault I think once you get past like the the Barnes and Noble Foucault of like madness and civilization discipline and punish uh, where like people are like oh yeah Foucault is this like edgy like power right and like (laughs) all the power dynamics like once you get into Foucault on like biopolitics and psychiatry and like there is a t- so much fruitful stuff um, that I think has been tapped into in some context, but popularly hasn't really been. Mm-hmm. Um, Foucault discourse is kind of stuck on power, but once you get into like, what is the social body? What is medicine? Like how is medicine disciplining the social bot, like all of these sort of connecting Mm -hmm. points. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think especially as we are coming out of a pandemic and I'm like thinking, okay, what does theology look like in a world where not only is the state like, you know, I, and I'm, I'm on like vaccinated supporting like health measure person, Mm -hmm. but Foucault does require us to like ask okay, but how much power does the state have if the state is also like organizing health and Mm, the body? And um, thinking theologically, like for me, Foucault has just made me take seriously like history and genealogy of ideas Mm. and how do we get to the point that we're at right now um, in a way that's not, I think theologians are often like, well, yeah, because like, God's providence and history or whatever, but Foucault really forces us to like stop and think like, how did we go from public executions to the largest prison system in the world? Hmm. And it's not just a matter of, it's not as easy as like these evil people decided to put everyone in prison instead of executing them, but it gets into drawing into question like the biggest advocates for the prison system were humanists 
wanting to reform the execution process and make it more humane. So he's really like this neutral person a lot of the time that's just like, Mm -hmm. look how complicated things are. And theologically, it just forces me to respond to those things. Um, That was kind of long, but Fanon is the second one, I think. And I think it's just because um, outside of things like Wretched of the Earth, which would be, I guess, Fanon's probably more popular, like his big book, rightfully so. Um, I recently just finished reading his psychiatric works from his experience as a, like, in a psychiatric hospital in Africa. And as like in a colonized, French colonized context. Um, And that just blew me away. Uh, Just the way that he really is weaving like his psychiatric practice with real patients, but acknowledging the sort of colonial dynamics Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. these people are experiencing. So Mm -hmm. for a quick example, like in these texts, he ran an experiment where he like communalized the psych ward in France to where the community was like in charge of their themselves. And so basically, yeah, like it's really wild. And he just like kind of like decolonized this psych ward and like, Mm -hmm. uh, like got rid of restraints and like interventions and just had like the quote unquote psychotics or like the mad people like, come together and do their thing and they eventually started like caring for each other and it was very like interesting um but then he did the same thing in a predominantly african muslim context and tried to like enforce the sort of french social vision in there and it didn't work and Hmm. he talks about like basically how in order for actually like non-carceral systems to take over you have to let the indigenous way of life actually flourish Mm -hmm. and you can't like Mm -hmm. force a vision upon it um and once he did that once he like gave the freedom to these uh muslim patients to organize themselves in a way that was familiar to their culture it mirrored the first experiment Mm -hmm. and um that's like a long-winded way of saying that theologically really was like helped me to really think about taking seriously the experience of the mad person in their context Mm -hmm. and what are the social resources that we have that would enable their flourishing rather than again like the carceral logics that are sort of in the medical community so yeah Yeah. totally yeah i could see how in a sneaky way a kind of post-colonial mentality could could be there as you're doing your theology without even without you even realizing it like i can imagine that that's sort of ever looming so that's yeah that's awesome that fanon is mindful of that and that that's being that's been helpful for you um one question i have is obviously this might be a hard question for you at this point being you know it being your first year in your phd program but what has it been like trying to discern and maybe you already know maybe you already have a plan but what has it been like trying to discern what you want to do after your phd or what you want to do with your phd 
Um, are those things clear to you or do you have kind of a set of options? Or are you sort of just surrendering it all to God or what does that look like <laughs> for you? I think if it's the surrendering it all to God kind of thing is, is almost too real in terms of it's totally unpredictable. And uh, I, I think you probably are well aware of the state of academic jobs uh, and not only are they few and far between, but I think there's just not a lot of room if, and I think I'm in this weird, I'm in a weird place where a lot of what I'm doing is not typical, like I'm not a systematic theologian doing a PhD in like doctrine of God and I'm white and male, right? Uh, So in some ways I think like, I'm in a weird position in that I think there are some doors open to me in the academy because of the by nature of what I'm researching, but also mm-hmm. just again the availability of jobs is it, minimal. Uh, yeah. So I've kind of like I have a few connections to local universities that even not thinking full time, but just being involved in them in whatever capacity that looks like, I think is important because it, again, like not even thinking like full-time professorship, but even just adjunct work Mm -hmm. on the side of whatever else I'm doing is keeping a foot like in the academy. But also what I am researching, I think the more that I research, the more that I'm convinced that if I were even to be like a full-time professor I would, I would still like have to somehow be involved in it in real life, like outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like I said, you know, one of the biggest factors of my research is mass incarceration. And mm-hmm. I think what I hope to do after the PhD is that no matter where I'm at, I want to get creative with how to use the PhD in a liberative way and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to sort of actually interact with the people that I am concerned about in my research and uh, that I have like personal experience in. And um, yeah, I don't know if that, that's not really a concrete answer because I don't have like a, I've got like three job options that are just waiting for me um, (laughs) after I'm done with all of this, but it's kind of just like keeping it open to whatever makes sense and whatever, feels right which sounds really vague but if if that means that i'm like working for sisters of the road full time mm-hmm. with a phd like that work would be meaningful and mm-hmm. obviously like if i were to publish anything while working at a and like, sorry for those who are familiar like sisters of the road is i guess like a not a grassroots like nonprofit that is here in portland that is probably like the most real response to houselessness in the sense mm-hmm. that they feed, but also employ and like coach and do like nonviolent intervention into the, the streets of Portland. Mm-hmm. And they are like actively resisting a lot of the sort of weird, like police sweeping and, and a lot of the police responses to homeless houselessness. Um, and I think, if I were involved with something like that in a PhD, like I wouldn't complain because to me that would be equally as fruitful, if not more fruitful out of the education 
than to like stay in the academy full time. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if yeah. that really answers it because I don't have like a concrete answer, but something that actually has like skin in the game and yeah. is involved with the struggle that is happening in our society and who knows what that looks like. So, yeah, no, yeah. I don't expect anybody to have a concrete answer to that question when they're in their first year or even their final year of their PhD. So that's totally <laughs> understandable. Um, let's, let's do one last question and then you can get back to reading um, dozens of pages of Merleau-Ponty. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, what advice would you give to maybe people who are interested in doing a PhD or who have been accepted to a PhD and are about to start? What would you, what would you tell them? I think, um, this is probably the most typical, one of the most typical things to say, but like trusting the process. If you're in a PhD program, uh, just trusting the process that is guiding you along, um, it again, like I said, like it's for me, it'd been disorienting, but part of what I've had to learn is like, if you have a good supervisor, part of what you do is trust them. And if they say you're, if they say that you are doing well, they mean it. Like they've seen enough people that have not done well that they know what they're talking about. Um, And that I think whatever else happens in a PhD program, whether US or UK, if you trust your supervisor, that pretty much will guide you through the whole program because they're the one that has to get you from start to finish. Uh, And if you're considering a PhD, I think, wow, um, like really, really, really consider why you want that. Uh, Because it's not... As we've just discussed, it's not a guarantee for the dream uh, professor job. <laughs> and if anything, like there are almost too much, too many of us. So mm-hmm. it's I think if you're considering a PhD in theology, number one, really ask yourself why. And two, if you have a, a good why, um, consider how you might use that outside of the university mm. setting and mm. uh, because there's a lot of meaningful things happening outside of the university and that might just be the future of where all of the hundreds of PhD students are ending up is in places that aren't the universities. So yeah, uh, I would really consider those things. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's great advice. And I think the, the bit about, you know, trusting your supervisor i think just brings home how important it is i mean i'm not a phd student but but from what i hear just from others is that the importance of you know your relationship with your supervisors particularly in uk programs but just in general is huge Mm -hmm. um oh yeah so it seems like getting to know them as as best as you can ahead of time is really really helpful. I mean, it, it'd be like you know, a, you know, a, a boss at a job can totally make or break a job, even if it's a job you really <laughs> love. If you have a boss who just micromanages you or never invests in your progress, like right, it's probably gonna yeah. be a pretty bad experience for you. So yeah, I think that's yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Cody. I, I really appreciate this. It's been a good, good talk. And like I said, let's definitely, you know, since I know now that you're in Portland, let's definitely grab coffee or something. Soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Talk to you soon.